Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We're going to spend some time talking about two fundamental aspects of society today. First, the degree to which sex is connected to everything. Marketing, relationships, intimacy, joy, essentially all forms of human interaction. As my guest Emily Witt says, we organize our society around the way we define our sexual relationships. The second factor is change, creative destruction, dislocation, whatever we want to call it. It's the impact that technology and progress is having on everything we do. The inflection point at which these two things come together is in part what Emily Witt writes about in her new book, Future Sex. And yet, even in that future, as Woody Allen so aptly said, we all need the eggs. Emily Witt is written for The New Yorker, N Plus One, The New York Times, and The London Review of Books. She studied at Brown, Columbia, and the University of Cambridge and was a Fulbright scholar. It is my pleasure to welcome Emily Witt here to talk about her new book, Future Sex. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. It's interesting that while sex is so much a part of so many things in the culture, that in many ways we don't realize how important it is or how serious it is or or the degree to which it impacts people's lives. Talk about that first. Sure, yeah. When I started writing the book, a lot of people asked me if they, you know, if I thought I was writing about a frivolous subject. You know, I try to think of myself as a serious reporter and journalist, and I think sex and dating gets slotted into a kind of entertainment category or a light frivolous category. And the thing was is that I noticed that a lot of the changes going around going on around me were really affecting my friends in a really fundamental way. And to me this is one of the most pressing and yeah, just really vital issues of contemporary life um, that deserve very serious treatment. Does it seem as if the more light we shine on it sometimes, the more we put it out there in the public spotlight, the less we really understand it, the less we really get to, to the heart of what it's all about? Yeah, in some ways there's a lot of noise around the subject um, and a lot of kind of almost hysteria, especially when it comes to stuff like Internet dating. And a lot of times people... I don't know. I noticed with a technology like Tinder, for example, that people just wanted to think that the technology could change everything about the way that we related to each other. Um, There was almost a hope that it would. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and sometimes it's easy to forget that these, you know, these technologies are just another way of introducing people to each other. And once you're in the same room together, you know, you still have to figure out how to organize and structure your relationships. Talk a little bit about what you set out to do in in writing this book. Yeah, initially I thought I was going to write a kind of cultural history of sexuality since 1990, focusing on three major changes I saw, which were a demographic change where people were getting married later or not at all, um, the technological change where we had the Internet um, and new ways of meeting each other and new ways of forming communities, and a moral change where we were just as a society far more open to a diversity of sexual identities and interests and orientations. Um, and so I started out kind of writing this very flat history and and part of what I was doing was going and meeting different avant-garde cultures. So I met with some feminist pornographers. I met with this group that practices something called orgasmic meditation. I met with, um, a group of young polyamorous living in San Francisco. 
And then as I went on, I realized this kind of dry, removed history that I had planned to write wasn't the right book because these were questions that had affected me really personally. I had just turned 30. I was kind of understanding that my life wasn't probably going to turn out the way I had assumed it would automatically turn out, which is that I would just fall in love and meet somebody and get married. Um, And I had all this freedom that I had never really considered. And there were all these contemporary possibilities that I had just thought of myself as not that kind of person. So once I began exploring these cultures, subcultures in a journalistic way, it turned out that they held a lot of interest in, in the stories I was telling about my own life. To what extent did you discover a dark side in all of this? Because it's interesting you talk particularly about your experiences and and what you saw coming to San Francisco and in the tech culture and Silicon Valley culture, and that it was almost too surfacey, too bright, too shiny, and, and that it missed some of the value of that darker side. Yeah, I mean... You know, I, for example, the polyamorous I met, part of the reason that the lifestyle works for them is because I, they seem to be very emotionally stable people. And so when I was kind of considering this as a possibility for my own life or imagining how it would work out for me, you know, I saw some of my own insecurities or kind of, um, yeah, just, I don't know. It just was like, oh, you'd have to be a real optimist to make this work. You'd have to you'd have to be a bright person in some ways. <laughs> and so, yeah, there were, there were things that, you know, I could, I could see like a very positive side being presented. Um, but in general, actually with the book, I felt like we're so aware of the negatives of the culture that we live in right now. I wanted to write something that felt optimistic and that felt like I was finding a window out beyond the, the kind of binary I had been raised to to think of, you know, between a married life and a kind of young person's single life. You know, what would a what would a single life look like where you're still in the world as an individual but you're also sexually connected and you have a sense of family and you have a sense of belonging and emotional stability. How to create that was kind of one of the questions I sought to answer with the book. It does seem as if there are dividing lines, that we, we divide our lives up, particularly our sexual lives, into different periods of time with very, very distinct boundaries. Yeah, and that was one of the things I found really arbitrary once I started to think about it. You know, here I've been taught to think of, you know, I would have this period of experimentation as a young person, and then at some point it would end. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of like, well, why does it have to end? And why do we associate a certain kind of sexuality with youth when, you know, many of us get divorced or never get married or whatever happens and we find ourselves later in life living a single life, a single person life. And, you know, the more stories I think we can tell about what those lives are like, um, the more kind of yeah, we don't have to live in this ontological monoculture of, of where one, you know, where we have this one idea of what your life is supposed to be like. Right. I mean, the irony in all of this, to, to go back to one of the earlier points we talked about, the irony is that there is so much sex in the culture, and yet we spend so little time really thinking about it and its implications. 
Yeah, I mean, once I started examining my mythologies, I, you know, I guess because I, I kind of fit in with consensus mainstream culture, I thought of myself as like, you know, I didn't have to undergo this kind of, I don't know, um, personal exploration that I maybe would have to if I had been gay or I had felt somehow outside of a prescribed role. But for me, I was, I, you know, I felt like I fit in really well with the expectations that were set out for me. So I didn't feel any need to question them. Once I started to question them, I began to see how fabricated they were, how kind of arbitrary, um, and, you know, that process was a process, not only a physical exploration, which, you know, is one thing. Yeah, you can go out and, and mess around and meet people and all of that. But actually, it's kind of much more a process of sitting at home by yourself and thinking about the set of ideas you're raised with and why they, why you have them and how they're affecting your narrative of your life. Um, yeah. What role do you think does class play in all of this? Um, you know, yeah, my book is definitely specific to people like me, which I would say kind of middle class to upper middle class people with a lot of education. Most of the people I wrote about how it went to college. Um, but, you know, this is not um, a class-specific exploration you know I see a lot as you probably know you know the marriage rate is declining in the U.S. and now 40% of births are to unwed parents and a lot of times this is told as a class story that educated have more educated people are more likely to get married and less educated people are not and it always sort of bothers me that that's um it's presented as an economic consequence and not that you know, people of all classes are undergoing a kind of personal examination of whether we need these these family structures that we, many of us, were raised with or that have been dominant in American society for, you know, historically. How much of it did you find had to do with technology that was available today, whether it was with respect to dating, the way we communicate, the way we can talk to each other, that there's a whole different way we can communicate today? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about internet dating, and one thing that's interesting, you know, I called the book Future Sex, and I I was trying to articulate an idea of the future, not only of my own personal future, but also of what the future of sexuality could look like. Um, And I came to understand that there's a machine bias around what's seen as futurism. And everybody wants the technology in some ways to vastly change the ways that we go about our sexual lives. So, you know, again, like I said before, Tinder is, you know, when I first started writing about it in 2013, when it first came out, I wrote a story for GQ about it. And everybody that I interviewed would ask me what it was supposed to be for, as if the app defined their actions, when really within the app, there was nothing that said it was a hookup app, nothing. It it was actually kind of as anodyne and bland as it could possibly be. Um, And it was so interesting to me that people wanted to be told how to act and to make sure that they were acting in the right way, you know? Um, so the technology in some ways, yes, we, it is easier to meet a stranger than it's ever been, um, in a big city. You know, it is easier to access a vast array of sexual fantasy and imagery. Um, 
you know, we have just, there's more, I don't know, all those things. It's easier to find a community if you identify with like a kind of smaller community of people who practice a certain sexual practice, you know, you can find that on the internet and connect with those people now. But on the other hand, you know, what a real futurism, what a real futuristic sex would look like would actually be redefining the language that we use to speak about our relationships, you know, ideas like non-monogamy, polyamory, co-parenting, new ideas about gender, about, um, you know, family and how we organize our households. To me, that's like the much, that's the much more exciting futurism that's available to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways more nebulous and difficult to articulate. Do you get a sense that that people are aware that the landscape is changing, that there is more openness to talk about all of this, that there is more exploration going on? You know, yes and no, because one thing, and certainly for myself this is true, people people can look at the statistics and see that there's been some kind of shift in the way that we're living. But most of my friends and me interpreted the fact that, you know, we were in our 30s, we were not attached to somebody, you know, we haven't had a baby yet, whatever these anxieties were that were surfacing. Most people I knew kind of were interpreting them as personal failures or bad luck. Um, And it helps sometimes to look at the bigger picture and to notice that you're actually part of a, a wider social shift. And it gives you a sense of agency and optimism, I think, to see yourself as part of a big social experiment instead of, I don't know, some kind of sad spinster or something like that. In terms of your sense of optimism or pessimism about all of this, where where did you start? Where did you end up? I started from a place of real pessimism, just kind of, you know, I was really frustrated with the magazine articles and then TV shows I was watching that were saying, you know, um, just lamenting, basically that presented an idea for women that the only kind of sexuality that would make you happy was this kind of stable monogamous thing and that that represented the apex of equality and respect in a sexual relationship and that, you know, anything else you were doing was kind of either false consciousness or you trying to mimic the, I don't know, the, the, whims of men or or something like that. Um, And it always made me feel really trapped. And undergoing this exploration, which was both journalistic and then ultimately personal, it it allowed me to examine all the mythologies that I had been raised with about how to act and what it meant. I don't know, things like, you know, I used to think that if you were too sexually open, um, you know, Basically, I didn't value sex. I didn't value, I saw it as kind of a cheap thing, whereas like this idea of this perfect relationship I had in my mind was so much more valuable to me. And, you know, once I freed myself of those ideas, I really did, I don't know, I feel so much more optimistic now. And it's not that, um, it's not that my life is like perfect or, you know, there's no happy ending necessarily, but I just came out of it kind of the exploration of my sexuality allowed me to feel a sense of agency. It made me feel like I could, not that I was going to try to live some really original life, but that I could define commitment with my partners and not have the culture tell me what commitment meant. And that I could, I don't know, that I could, I understood that I could try things 
that before might have scared me or made me nervous without losing my sense of myself, and that was really comforting to me. And basically, I came out of it with an understanding that somebody will always want to have sex with me, and that <laughs> the idea of the you know the things that the culture presents about what what's sexy or what's beautiful actually have nothing to do with the way our attractions work, and that was really comforting to me. The other part, though, is is the cultural headwinds that are so strong in terms of, of all those sort of traditional ideas. Yeah, I mean, anybody who doesn't live, you know, if you get married and you have kids and you live the traditional family, you never have to question that. Every, I feel like everybody around you is going to affirm the worth of that and the challenges of that, that they're worthwhile and worth persevering through. You know, if you're, on the other hand, trying to be polyamorous and, and, and you're in a difficult emotional place, people will say, well, that's because you're trying this experiment that's always going to fail, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you want to be in sync with sort of the mainstream, it still feels really good to just be married and have kids and get a house and achieve all those milestones. <laughs> Is there an age parameter for this? I don't know. I don't think so because, you know, so much experimentation, so much, you know, when I was writing the book, I was so interested in what had happened in the 60s and 70s and um, a kind of mass experiment that had been undertaken in free love and ideas of free love and, you know, the new communal, new communalism and all of these um, experiments that happened that for somebody my age, I was born in 1981, you know, looking back at that history, it was often presented as kind of naive or um, mistake and it had gone too far. And for me, you know, Obviously, people of those gen- that generation lived a very open life of inquiry, and I wanted to kind of, you know, this idea, you know, people, younger people in some ways are a lot more conservative, and I wanted to bring back some of those, the idea that you could still make primary choices about the family and the structure of society. I don't know. I think people my age sometimes thought that that wasn't possible anymore, Um And so part of the book is looking at ways that that might be true. There still might be a way to restructure society that isn't going to make everything fall apart. Could a man have written this book? A man would have written a different book. And in many ways, I want a more masculine take on on what it's like to live with this sexual freedom that we have right now. Um, You know, I was, I think women have a lot more... um, of competing stories to wade through about, you know, what's going to make you happy. There's just, you know, whereas a man maybe can be comfortably certain that sex is good and the more you have, the better you are. And, (laughs) um, you know, you're really, you can just name all your desires and talk about masturbation and watch porn. It's much more easy to be sort of within yourself, whereas with women, I think there's just a lot more guilt and, um, yeah, just kind of brainwashing going on. <laughs> so it's much harder to just sort of name what you like and and feel safe in that. In your historical exploration, in looking back to the 60s and looking at where we are now, how did the younger generation today get so much more conservative in this regard? Well, I think, you know, it's... 
for me, you know, looking at my own thing, I for me it was more, my parents married in their mid-20s. They're very social, liberal people, and they have a lot of friends that lived way more experimental lives than they did in the 60s. And, you know, the... I guess what I I felt like they had broken all of these barriers for me or for people my age, you know, because we had birth control now and we have this open culture where we can talk about sexuality and as young people were almost expected to experiment. We don't have, I don't know, at least I wasn't raised with any kind of sense of sin around sex or, or repression. But there was still this idea that, you know, you don't take it too far. You have this time of experimentation as a young person and then you kind of settle down and get married and raise the family that you were raised in. You, you know, you kind of mimic that. And I think I think because there were genuine kind of catastrophes that followed this, you know, as there would be. People made mistakes. People ended up, you know, the, the new communalism was often very sexist or, you know, whatever that story is of the 60s that it ended with a Manson family or something, I think that that was really pervasive. And I was raised, you know, in Reagan-era America, which was kind of a retrenchment into certain ideals. But meanwhile, all this other stuff was happening, you know, gay rights, human, and changing ideas of, of sexual identities. And somehow that was kind of a hidden story, maybe, for a long time. Do you think that there, there is a nexus with the sense of the desire for authenticity that young people feel today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I see that a lot in the way, for example, when I go to a wedding now of a kind of person in their 20s or 30s, you know, they, they want it to feel like they're not just kind of mimicking an institution. There's all this <laughs> you know, writing your own vows and kind of dabbling in all the different religions in order to give a sense of spirituality without having to be really, I don't know, dogmatic about it and stuff. It's kind of really interesting to me. There is a search for authenticity that um, is really apparent. You think that if uh, you wrote this book 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it would be appreciably different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, or I, I think the family is going to undergo a really fundamental shift in the next few years um, or next couple decades. And that many of the structures and language we use to describe ourselves right now will feel really dated and obsolete. Emily Witt. Her book is Future Sex. It's just out from Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. Emily, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was great to be here. Thank you.